What Baron got from Greeley is this sense of the concrete. This is joy in concrete Catholic practices, you know, many of which had been cast aside after Vatican II. That's one thing that Barron is, is he just absorbs whatever he's around, he just absorbs it. He really does, and he puts it into his, um, you know, his worldview. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu join for more information. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today I am joined by my good friend and colleague, co-author, Matthew Levering, uh, who currently holds the uh, Perry Chair of Catholic Theology at Mundelein Seminary. Uh, welcome to the show, Matthew. That's great to be here. Thank you, Michael. We're here today to talk about a wonderful new book uh, that you've written on the theology of Robert Barron. Right? Bishop Barron uh, has been one of the just kind of huge forces in the face and shape of Catholicism in the United States and in Europe as well. Uh, his work with Word on Fire Press, his writings, uh, his early Catholicism series, right? In so many different ways, Bishop Barron has helped both to evangelize and catechize and also write theology for um, right this, this generation, both reaching out to those Catholics in a way who may be disaffiliating from their faith, but also to students of theology. And just in so many ways, I think Bishop Barron has really been one of the great heroes of our times. And so it's wonderful to have you uh, write a whole book about his theology to help people kind of understand that there's a large kind of plan at work, a coherent way of understanding God and what he has done in Jesus Christ that really animates uh, Bishop Barron's theology. So just wanted to thank you for this book. Uh, it's, a, I think, a great gift, and I think it will be well-received by uh, many readers. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thank you for that, because um, remember, you and I, we met we met Bishop Barron the first time in 2003 at, a, at the John Paul II and St. Thomas Aquinas conference that, that we co-organized yes. there at, at Ave Maria, um, you know, still on the Michigan campus. And uh, I remember... I remember, um, you know, Bishop Barron with, with one of the at with Cardinal Dulles and and all sorts of other different uh, fascinating people, but I remember his talk being something unique because it wasn't just it was scholarly, but you could feel you could feel sort of the electricity that he had as a as a, a speaker and a communicator, you know. So this this was no ordinary professor. <laughs> that that was kind of what the sense that you got. <laughs> Yeah, it is great in some ways, you know, and you mentioned in your book uh, that John Allen had already written a biography of Bishop Barron and had compared him to Fulton Sheen. Uh, and Fulton Sheen was also a great academic, right? He, um, I think it was Louvain, had received, right, this uh, great prestigious uh, award for his dissertation. But he took the depth of that study to teach theology not only to seminarians and to mm theological students, but also right right into the uh, living rooms 
uh, and family rooms of America, right? Uh, uh, Through his uh, radio show for decades and then eventually his TV show. Uh, And I think in many ways, Bishop Barron is similar to that, someone who has a mind and scholarly uh, habitus, a study, like a formed mind of really the highest caliber, but has sought to put that to work to help to communicate the truth of the faith amidst many people both in the church and outside the church who really question, is truth knowable? Uh, Is the church true? Is the church good? Is it beautiful, right? And helping to recover that profound sense of confidence, right, that God has spoken in Jesus Christ, that God can speak to us, right, and that uh, we can somehow hear him and listen to him and follow him, right, through the church, right? And and I, I just think he's been a great blessing, and I think it's really wonderful that, uh, again, you've done this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a lot of fun, a lot of fun to work on and uh, to, you know, begin to uh, think about the sources of his work, the the context. Essentially, that's kind of the thing that I'm doing there because it's it is intended to be in in this fashion a scholarly book. It's it's not it's not um not just a synopsis. In other words, Bishop Barron he could write a better um, summary of his own theology than I could. So so this is really um it's intended you know to be I hope somewhat readable, but but nonetheless it really is intended for um you know people uh, grad graduate students seminarians, uh, priests, um, and, and young professors um, to kind of see what theology was like when, when Bishop Barron came of age, what the church was like, and then to kind of see how Bishop Barron uh, pushes things forward and develops a vision and um, is able then also to, um, you know, unite things that are separated. You know, Bishop Barron does, he goes into biblical exegesis, he goes into uh, the spiritual life. He writes uh, books on on um, you know how to live the spiritual life, uh, but so he's doing things that uh, oftentimes professors uh, forget to do. But he's also writing books on 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 God, on Jesus Christ, on Thomas Aquinas, um, both popular and and scholarly. You know, but in in the end, you know, he's got a real he's got such an intelligence that. It really comes across in everything he writes. I I consider him, you know, a greater theologian than Fulton Sheen. I, I recently re- read Fulton Sheen's um, book on the mystical body that that Word on Fire had published, and and so Sheen is a great mind, but but he's he's not a theologian of the caliber of Barron. You know, Barron, um, you know, is a high level, really high level theological mind. Well, that's a uh, that's that's high praise and. Um... Uh, you've read and uh, written books on um, you've uh, about almost probably every theologian over the last hundred years or so, so or at least written about them in your books. And so uh, you definitely have a a good you know criteria uh, for making such judgments and evaluations. So you know one thing that's interesting is Bishop Barron speaks a lot about what he would call this beige Catholicism. And that there was, you know, in the 70s and 80s when he was growing up, when he was in seminary, a tendency to kind of water down the faith. Uh, And the interesting thing about this term beige Catholicism is that you can see it both in the way that uh, catechesis was done with uh, young adults, the way catechesis might have been done in parishes. But it also was kind of theology done at the highest level that also became somewhat beige. 
And you talk in your book in the introduction about how there was another theologian, Karl Rahner, who became very important after uh, the council. A lot of people read him. Bishop Barron describes him as very influential in his seminary courses. But around the same time, he was often emphasizing the fluidity of the church, right? The fact that the church could change, that the church uh, should change, uh, and these sorts of different things. And so you have this kind of beigeness that also goes with this fluidity. Can you say a little bit about how Bishop Barron encountered that? And, you know, what was the alternative uh, that he discovered? Well, you remember for, I say, okay, so Barron read, he read in seminary, you know, everything by Rahner. Rahner was sort of a dominant voice and everything was either Rahnerian or, um, and, and they, the seminary professors at that time were uh, a mixed bag, you know, and and so what it was would be that Rahner, Rahner had a, a starting point, an anthropological starting point, which just means that he started with the, um, you know, the mind's desire, the mind's kind of dynamism um, toward toward um, God. Um, so the mind, um, you know, knowing and loving, you know, so starting with the human mind and the human dynamism of knowing and loving. And so Jesus then would be sort of the um, ultimate, the pinnacle of um, of this human dynamism, that there's just never been a person who, who um, knew and loved like, like Jesus did. In fact, Jesus, his knowing and loving is, is so profound that um, we could even call him God because his his infinite, his desire to know, his his knowing and his um, uh, loving. I'm, I know I'm, I'm kind of rambling on here, but um, to some degree that Rahner does as well. You know, it, it's the idea is that, that the dynamism is so unique in Jesus, his religious consciousness, that... Um, you know, he sort of rises to the level of the divine knower and and lover, and and kind of because he he's the pinnacle of the human the human desire to know and love. Anyway, um, the the bottom line is that it really is about kind of focus on on the human and the human dynamism, and then Jesus is sort of the crowning point of that, or you know, and so it's really though about the human and and about um about us. And so the sacraments and so on become just simply ways of confirming who we are. And we are loved by God, and we are um, have a desire to know and love God. We have sort of a, an option for God, a dynamism. And so the sacraments just sort of confirm, and Jesus just sort of shows up and is the pinnacle um, of the human race. But you know, he doesn't really uh, actually um, accomplish that much or know that much. He doesn't teach anything particular. You know, he does sort of exemplifies, you know, what it means to be the pinnacle of our, our dynamisms. But um, I, I'm not explaining Rahner um, as well as you would have to, but I, that's sort of the basic, uh, sort of like a basic outline of um, something you might need to know. And so Barron sort of gets into that situation and, and Barron sort of wonders where the Jesus of the Gospels went. <laughs> He says, you know, what happened to the Jesus of the Gospels, the actual Jesus? You know, and that's kind of, you know, I think he has that early on. He he has that early on, but he doesn't sort of thematize it until um, he gets back from, from Paris in the 90s. You know, he doesn't really start writing, you know, until he gets back from Paris. And, um, you know, then he begins, um, I mean, he does his dissertation and everything, but 
you know, his real work starts to come out in the late 90s. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book uh, an essay that Bishop Barron had written uh, called something about like how von Balthasar changed my mind. And it was in a way not from Balthazar's, like all that from Balthazar taught, but it was specifically that criticism of Rahner that we shouldn't start theological reflection with universal human experience of which Jesus is an example or an instantiation, which then would make, of course, every particular thing in the church revisable in light of the universal experience. Instead, we begin with the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, right? We begin with the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's actually the starting point for theology. I remember uh, I still assign an essay that he wrote, I think in the 90s as well, about how for Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas is right, he's not a rationalist. He doesn't start with human reason and our understanding of God. He begins with Jesus Christ as the icon of God, as Bishop Barron describes it. And mm -hmm. I think it is that starting point in not universal human experience, but starting point in this newness of what God is doing in creation and in the revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, and that as the moment of salvation. And as you point out, right, not merely exemplifying human life, but affecting a new human life. Jesus is not merely exemplary, he's efficacious. And I think that's kind of begins this starting point or like this turn of the you know young bishop baron or robert baron at that time uh that 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 really uh kind of unifies the rest of his theology mm -hmm. that's right and and he he studied in paris he um one of the interesting stories is that he had the option if, if i've got it if i'm remembering correctly he had the option cardinal george gave an option of studying in one of two places and one was going to be in Paris with the disciple of Henri de Lubac, you know, and that was that was how he ended up. The disciple is still alive; is is a Jesuit named uh, Michel Cor Corban. But uh, he did that. But the other option was, I think, to go study with Walter Kaspar in Germany. And so, by by studying in Paris with this disciple of Henri de Lubac, who was who was very much influenced by Karl Barth. You know, um, and he was just he was very Christocentric. And so he sort of read the fathers and the um, early medievals, Bernard of Clairvaux, in this profoundly um, Christ centered way, Christ doing something radically new. You know, this kind of um, ecstatic <laughs> bursting upon the scene, you know, changing everything, you know, uh, and really um renewing the world you know this was this was the vision of of the um the jesuit uh under whom bishop Barron did his dissertation and i th i think that had a big impact uh, i do now another impact of course was the fact that he had studied saint thomas on creation um at catholic university of america so uh, father sokolowski uh, john whipple you know these people had a, a major impact on, on framing his sort of metaphysical thought you know, um, yeah. he's definitely, definitely in his doctrine of God and his metaphysics. Bishop Barron would be, you know, very much a Thomist, and that comes yeah, from Catholic University of America. Yeah, and I think you summarized that at one point that the two pillars of his thought in the introduction you summarize as one, right? The non-competitive relationship between the Triune God as Creator and all of His creation. 
So this first one, that God and the world do not compete with one another. And then secondly, right, that Jesus Christ is the universal Savior, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. a great way of kind of showing how those two uh, pillars of his thought also came from teachers, right, that, that, that he, um, from whom he had learned. Uh, and then he becomes kind of uh, now the teacher of those key ideas. Uh, so you set up the book around six chapters, uh, evangelization, theocentrism, Christocentrism, the Catholic tradition, the moral life, and the spiritual life. But maybe we could just start with that first chapter on evangelization, right? The new evangelization has been a predominant theme in the life of the church since uh, Paul VI, but especially uh, associated with John Paul II and then carried forward uh, by Benedict and Francis. What would you say is distinctive about Bishop Barron's approach to evangelization. Well, well, in the chapter, I argue that the real source of the whole thing, uh, of course, it's his own, it's his own gifts, but um, the source of the thing is this Chicago priest who in some ways was kind of um, a crank named Andrew Greeley. And, and Greeley, though, truly was a fascinating man, a very, very deep Catholic, sort of like deep Catholic culture deep Irish Catholic, um, Chicago Catholic. And and he was just in love with everything Catholic. So Greeley would go around and be on the Phil Donahue show and and defend defend Catholicism in this in this way that um you know was sort of joyful. And 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 he really loved, he just loved everything about it. Greeley loved um the concrete. What he loved is the concrete Catholic practices. You know, like um, uh, processions or just the things that you learn in Catholic school. Or he does, he just loved it, it, the nitty gritty. You might say the sacraments. You know, he had this idea of the Catholic imagination, the sacramental imagination, where everything is brimming with with God. And and he just so the concrete Catholic life was what really loved. And then he loved also to take culture. And to analyze movies or or um, pop songs, analyze these figures, novels. He would do novels as well, and he would analyze them and show the Christian themes and the Catholic themes, the Catholic imagination. So Greeley was a sociologist, and had a PhD, and was um, also published romance novels. So Greeley was a he was kind of a, in some ways a a crazy figure, but. I, I know that you would remember him. He's he's sort of forgotten today, but he was a big a big person on the scene at that time. And so, so Bishop Barron got a sense of what um, now Greeley, of course, was that he did not like John Paul II and he did not like um, Catholic sexual teaching. Greeley was deeply mistaken. Now Barron just ignored all that. What Barron got from Greeley is this sense of the concrete, the concrete, this is joy in concrete Catholic practices, you know, many of which had been um, cast aside after Vatican II. They were just sort of dropped. And Greeley was very upset about this. So Greeley is actually the source of the whole beige Catholicism, you know, concern. If you if you see there's some this hilarious uh, rant that I include in my book that Greeley gives on a rant about about what's been what's been forgotten, not because of Vatican II, but but after Vatican II. And and these are just concrete Catholic practices, you know, like um processions, Eucharistic processions and and all sorts of things. And and Greeley just says, what have we done? 
you know, and, and here's here's a supposedly liberal Catholic um, going on a complete rant. Uh, anyway, now Barron takes the positive aspects of all of this and concrete practices, engagement with the culture, you know, films and novels and, and so on, art, you know, art and, and um, imagination, beauty. You know, Barron does absorbs this. That's one thing that Barron is, is he just absorbs whatever he's whatever he's around, he just absorbs it. He he really does, and he put it puts it into his um you know, his worldview, especially, especially when he's in the, in the 90s, you really see him doing this. It's, it's quite, quite amazing. Yeah. So in that way, when he say writes a book, Catholicism early on, he did, it was a, um, I think it was originally was issued in DVDs uh, that became very popular, uh, included mm -hmm. lots of art. So he shows the truth of the creed through the beauty of art right? The more concrete, the better through the understanding and response to cultural phenomenon at the level, like the more specific, the more concrete, the better. Unlike Greeley, who saw that and wanted somewhat the church's doctrine and moral teachings to shift, Barron holds on to the truth of the creed once given for all for salvation, but still maintains that that the creed in a way changes the way we look at every concrete detail of the life of the church and the life of culture. So we're going to go ahead and take a break and then we're going to come back. And when we come back, I want to go through uh, a little bit more of the book and kind of understand a little bit about how this creedal faith shapes Barron's approach to theology and evangelization. We'll return in a minute. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit avemaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are joined by Matthew Levering, a good friend and colleague, former colleague. Uh, Matthew Levering serves as the James and Mary Perry Chair of Theology at Mundelein Seminary. He's the author or editor of over 50 books. Uh, he uh, taught at Ave Maria for almost a decade and was definitely one of the founding uh, theologians of the Graduate Program of Theology and the Theology Department at Ave Maria. Um, I've been you know, honored to be able to be a co-author and co-editor with Matthew on a number of books. So we're delighted to have you here today. Hey, it's great to be here, Michael. And you, you forgot to mention that, that I hired you at Ave Maria. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, uh, Matt, Matthew is responsible for for, for all the, the, the good and bad. Um, no, thank you so much. So today we're talking about uh, Matthew's recent book on the theology of Robert Barron, uh, Bishop Barron and his word on fire, a major force and active agent in uh, the contemporary Catholic life. Uh, this book is published by Word on Fire Academic. And I also appreciate the way that you suggest in the book that, you know, we have to kind of understand Bishop Barron from the center of his theology, right? Sometimes, you know, people may be familiar with 
or critical of this or that, or you know, comment here, comment there. But that really overlooks. Um, and and of course, theologians ought to disagree with each other, right? I mean, this is theologians have been disagreeing with each other, uh, you know, for a long time uh, with Jerome and Augustine and even you know Bonaventure and Aquinas, right? But we ought not overlook that even though there may be particular areas with over which we may disagree, right? That there's this deep uh, centrality to Bishop Barron's theology. And as you talk about it, first is the theme of evangelization, but then the second two are theocentrism and Christocentrism. So theocentrism yeah. is the idea, right, is everything is centered around God, uh, right? And then secondly, yeah. everything is centered around Jesus Christ. So would you say a little bit about how those two ideas shape uh, Bishop Barron's thoughts, and perhaps maybe show how those are like alternatives to other ways of trying to understand Catholic theology in the present age. Well, the the alternative really is Rahner, you know, where you begin with um, the human, and then the divine revelation, Israel, the people of Israel, the covenants, you know, Jesus Christ, the temple. These things are all sort of um, placed in a secondary position, you know, as though um, some sort of, you know, universal human dynamisms um, really were what our faith is about. And so Baron, Baron get right to the core of the matter. You know, he does this already in his dissertation. And his dissertation, um, which he did there in Paris, is, you know, it's a reading of St. Thomas Aquinas on the doctrine of creation and therefore on God, the creator. And it's just an amazing portrait of God, the creator. And, and Barron shows so much love for God, the creator, and also for the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. He, he really understands that it's very beautifully done. And the, the value, though, is um, that he's, in a way, he's dialoguing with his dissertation director. And his dissertation director had come up with the idea, well, otherwise he's a great man, but had come up with the idea that Thomas Aquinas was a rationalist and Aristotelian who had no no Christian uh, sensibility, you know, um, basically who had translated Christianity into Aristotelian terms and was sort of a rationalist. And this was this was his dissertation director's view of Thomas Aquinas, and the dissertation director said we need to begin instead with Jesus Christ, you know, just that Thomas Aquinas we need to get rid of, you know, he he just had gone the wrong path, and and so Baron Baron shows that that there's nothing more um, glorious than Thomas Aquinas's vision of God, in part because it's the same vision of God that is revealed by Jesus Christ our Lord. And the, the key thing is God's, you know, pouring out his liberality, you know, his pouring out of gift, you know, or of, um, of being, you know, his creative, this the amazing miracle of creation, which fits with, you know, the incarnation. You know, the incarnation is understandable in light of this gift of creation. Yeah. That is so beautiful. I remember being a student, a graduate student in the 90s, and reading Bishop Robert Barron's book at the time. I think it was Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he takes Thomas's uh, five proofs for the existence of God, the five ways, uh, and he sees in each of those a way of showing that God is greater than our thoughts about God, right? We can understand mm -hmm. causes and first cause, we can understand causes, efficient causes, but God's the 
primary cause of everything. He's the primary efficient cause. So he's the cause in a way beyond all causes. We can understand causes in the world, but the rising up to the cause of the world, the cause of all created causes is not coming to another created thing, but it's coming mm -hmm. to God himself. And so from there, and, and this is partly from uh, the work of both Monsignor Whipple and Monsignor Sokolowski at CUA, right, is he emphasizes that idea of the non-competitiveness between the creator and the creature, right? That God mm -hmm. is not in competition with us. This is true, by the way, in uh, grace and free will. This is true in theology and science, right? Uh, this is true in so many different ways. God, uh, we are never, the creation cannot be in competition with God because its very being and movement is itself a gift and a participation in God. And only if we think about God as simply the highest being in the world would we think about God in competition. And, mm -hmm. but what he says there in that book, which is interesting, is he says that idea of God not being in competition with the world is what makes the incarnation possible, right? Because it's only in the incarnation that we see that if God, if Jesus is truly God and truly man, then either if they're in competition with one another, then he would have to be 90% God, 10% man. But only mm. if the creator and the creature are not in competition with one another can Jesus Christ be truly God and truly man, 100% God, 100% man, because, and yet still be one because they are not mm. in competition with one another. So this idea then, in some ways, the metaphysics of creation, trying to understand God as creator and then everything that he creates, not in competition, is actually the exactly what we discover in the incarnation. So the incarnation helps mm -hmm. us to understand creation, the non-competitive relationship, but also the non-competitive relationship of the creator and creation, the metaphysics of creation, allows us to understand better who Jesus Christ is. Right? Jesus mm -hmm. Christ is not in competition with himself. In Jesus Christ, we see creation and human nature in its kind of perfection. In a way, what would creation be, and what would the human, what would human nature be if it were restored to communion with the Father? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is beautifully put, and and Bishop Barron really does get to the heart of heart of things when he grounds his theology upon upon God, the, the glory of God. And then upon um, Jesus Christ, you know, he really he really grounds his theology where where we need to start. Yeah. But but you know this this wasn't really all that common in the eighties. I, I know you remember the um, yes. early nineties. You know, it was a different it was a different theological world. It was a world that was in, impoverished theologically, where where theologians would often be talking about either either things that very much diminished God. There was a lot of process what was called process theology. Process theology is very popular. Um, there was also um, different ways of um, different liberationist perspectives or contextualist perspectives, where where what theology was really about was um, you know freeing us from certain kinds of um, worldly um, economic or political struggles or, or whatnot. You see, this this type of thing, uh, theology wasn't in in particularly good shape in the time when Barron comes of age. Yes. And yes, so and, and in your chapter, himself, you go yeah, on. I was just saying, just saying, basically, just saying that Baron grounds himself very deeply in the Catholic understanding of God, the glory of God, the immensity, the amazing, 
character of God, and in the in very much in the Thomistic tradition, and then Barron grounds himself in Jesus Christ in a very deep doctrine of the incarnation, very powerful doctrine of the incarnation. So he's on he's on very solid footing. <laughs> that, that's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, and and he really begins that I think with this uh, groundedness in the creed, right? That we believe in God, uh, one God. We believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe what Jesus Christ has done. We believe in the church, the gift of uh, right, the communion of saints. All these different elements, and mm-hmm. and this is really the starting point. We don't reason to the creed, we reason from the creed. We don't reason to the cross, we reason from the cross. Um, and and so within That's that it. idea, one thing that you mentioned in the chapter on Christocentrism that I thought was so helpful was that, and especially say in the 80s and 70s, 80s and 90s, there was a strong emphasis within biblical studies on this kind of allowing the historical critical method to kind of predominate our reflections on really who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. Uh, So, right, this tendency to want to look at Jesus Christ only through the lens of historical criticism and therefore look even at Israel only through the lens of historical criticism, which means that there's an evolutionary perspective to Israel, then there's evolutionary perspective to Jesus Christ, and then there's an evolutionary perspective to the church, right? And this is kind of the predominant mode. And so you say that Bishop Barron never never throws out the historical perspective or the idea that we can't learn many his- things that are true about the historical situatedness of Israel or of Jesus Christ or of the apostles, um, but that he has a different way of receiving the truth of the Bible. So would you say a word about that? How does he offer an alternative to the predominance of historical critical modes of study, yet without denying a legitimate role for the historical study of the biblical literatures? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating period. It really is. And and I know that many of our listeners will remember the, the period. Uh, so Baron, of course, uh, reads all this in in um, his uh, seminary and, and so on. But the basic idea with Raymond, with the key figures were like Raymond Brown, um, John Meyer, um, Edward Skillebeeks. These are ones that I mentioned in the book. And so what you have with um, um, John Meyer, who is a devout Catholic, um, he presents Jesus under the title "A Marginal Jew." And so he's what he's looking for is like, what can we know historically about Jesus? And it turns out to be, um, you know, very little, you know, other than he was sort of a wandering prophet who made some eschatological or, or apocalyptic claims. Um, and then Raymond Brown, Raymond Brown uh, had his own thing, but he was sort of famous at the time for these type of books. Like he wrote a book, he wrote a book on about priests and bishop, where he just said that that really there was no cultic priesthood, that Jesus Jesus never intended a cultic priesthood at all. This was in the mid-70s. And that um, Jesus had, there was there were no bishops in the earliest church. And so, of course, this the, this book was mass marketed and given out as, um, as an Easter gift yes, <laughs> or a Christmas, yes, gift, Christmas yes. gift. I can't remember, to all, to all seminarians. This was in the 70s. And, and just saying there was, no, <laughs> there was none of this. And so, um, and Skillbeeks writes a book on on Jesus, uh, where Skillbeeks says, "Well, 
No one ever saw Jesus risen. No one ever saw him. But the apostles kind of got the idea that, like Peter, Peter got the idea that, you know, he lived such a good life, he just can't be dead. And uh, and it was just, it was like, these were the, the dominant figures. And so you and I, man, you remember, um, this was in 1995, I took a um, 95, 95% 96. Um, this is when we were in our master's program. And I took a course, I can't remember if you were there, but it was um, on New Te Introduction to New Testament. And it was, so the, the midterm was about, um, we learned nothing about Jesus, nothing about the theology, the, nothing about what he taught or lived or did. Um, but we, what we learned about was who, which, which gospel was first? Was it Mark or was it Matthew? Which pericope, you know, should Mark have priority? How does, how does the synoptic gospels relate to each other? And so that was on the midterm, and I did badly on it because I didn't care. And then it was also on the final. On the final exam, it was the same question, and I did again, again, did badly. So but the point is, it was a different world. And so Baron, um, what Baron does is he sort of comes into that world and he says, "Look, you know, how how do we know that um, historical research, um, valuable though it obviously is, how how is it the only way that who says that it's the only way to know about Jesus?" You know, could it not be that, um, you know, that the church, um, the church knows her Lord in all sorts of ways, you know, yes. and, uh, and so on. So, so Baron has this way of, um, you got to, you got to read what he actually says, because it's really fantastic. He has this way of just cutting right through the, the junk and does saying, look, the church, there's a number of ways. Um, it's very Newmanian. You know, he just says there's a number of, a number of ways in which you come to know who the, who Jesus is. And and there's no there's no reason to limit it to um, this kind of historical research that always brackets out what the church knows. You know, historical research has to bracket that out. So you can still value the historical research, and Baron does, but um, but there's just a lot of ways to know who who this Jesus is to know to know yeah. Jesus. Baron's really yeah. good on this. Yeah, and historical research uh, is as a mode of inquiry cannot yield more than the conclusions of historical research. And uh, this is one of the things that even, you know, from Balthazar we'll talk about is you're not going to die for the conclusion of historical research, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you will die for a person, right? I mean, you would die for a uh, a parent might die for a child, um, right? You might die for another one. Jesus might die for us, right? We might die for Jesus, but we die for persons and persons are always more than the historical reconstructions of them. Right, there are realities mm -hmm. prior to it, and it's interesting. Right around this time, right at that time, Joseph Ratzinger, professor, and then Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, in uh, Ratzinger's introduction to Christianity, he makes kind of a similar point: is history as a whole is the whole of our lives. It's it's so history in a way includes everything that's happened, and therefore our own connection with one another or our turning away from connection. But historical research only looks at what we have documentation for. So it only can see mm -hmm. like, you know, 5% of reality. Mm -hmm. And so he simply says, we have to look, if we want to be properly historical, we have to look far beyond what merely we have historical documentation of. We have to look to the reality. And it's also, as you know, in 1988, right around the same time that Bishop Barron is is doing this work and is offering this alternative, he gives a famous Erasmus lecture on historical critical, um, the method of historical critical study in which he says, as a method, the historical critical method 
typically makes presumptions philosophically, right, about our ability to know God through history that are actually antithetical to the Catholic faith, right? And he says mm-hmm. we have to go back and recover the patristic mode of biblical exegesis, but in a way that doesn't reject the ongoing historical insights, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think Bishop Barron uh, is is doing something that was really important, and I think it, it was more dominant at that time in the life of the uh, average seminarian, perhaps, mm-hmm. or you know, the average lay Catholic. Uh, but I think the the tendency is still there to right that we don't want to limit our faith claims to the findings of historical research right that that the faith has to be fundamentally a personal encounter with reality with a person who has been communicated to us by other people namely right through the apostles through the bishops uh and ultimately and through, the god's ability to speak to us yes yeah and through through the through the saints as well you know the yes. saints and the liturgy through the liturgy yeah you know, all sorts of ways and yeah no, and maybe it, would you say a word nice. bishop baron has done a great work in terms of recovering the art of the church, the beauty of the church, the beauty of the saints. You know, could you say a little bit about, and even I think in your chapter on the moral life, you talk about the way that Bishop Barron includes saints to help us understand, right, how to live a life in accord with Christ's call. Uh, that's true. That Yeah, the chapter, yeah, there I get into, you know, Barron was very influenced by um, Stanley Harawas and the whole idea um, that the whole idea that moral theology involves a personal narrative, involves a narrative. You know, moral theology is not just a set of um, one act after another act um, that are that are separated. Moral theology involves a human life, and so this is why um, you know virtues are important because virtues have to do with not just this act or that act, but but who we are. You know, and so of course you can you can lose a virtue by um, committing a sin that destroys the virtue, but but you got to keep in mind that um, that what a virtue is, it has to do with the, who the who the person, the person's character, um, the, how how the person is being formed and shaped, and so Baron Baron um, probes into the supernatural moral virtues, the virtues that are infused um, through the gift of faith, you know, the infused moral virtues. And he exemplifies them um, by Saint Therese of Lisieux, um, Saint Edith Stein, and then um, a couple others. I, I can't. Um, I, I'll remember. If, I'll remember in a second. But he he goes. Oh, well, I I, I better not say because I get it wrong. <laughs> but anyhow, so he does four cases on um, on prudence, justice, temperance, and courage, and so it's a very beautiful exposition of what these. What these infused virtues, what are we talking about when we're talking about infused virtues? So Baron gives us actual lives of saints yeah. you know, who exemplify these virtues and show us you know, what it really is. Yeah. And but it, it also it comes live and you know, it makes you feel like you know, regular people do this. In other words, we can we can do it. We can we can live these virtues that God has um gifted us with um through our um incorporation into into Jesus Christ. So oh, Baron is fantastic about that, and and he's also great with art. Art, just like you said, he wrote a book on um, cathedrals, because Baron in Paris gets incredibly caught up in in kind of the 
the art or the iconography or all the symbolism that you would find that you find in in, in Chartres and the great the great medieval cathedrals. So Baron is just amazing. This book that he has on on this on this topic is really quite extraordinary, and it does it does really take you into um, what it means to be to be Catholic and to to live a, a truly liturgical life. You know, Baron on the moral life and on the spiritual life is so rich. You know, he's very, very much, um, you know, within, he's fully within the Catholic tradition, fully within understanding the church's teachings, but he sort of gets you into them, you know, from the from the heart of Jesus Christ in a way that's uh, quite powerful. Uh, that's, that's so well put. And uh, thank you for uh, summarizing that. And uh, thank you for your book. Uh, I like to ask all my uh, the guests on the Catholic Theology Show uh, three uh, short questions. So, what's a book you've been reading lately? <laughs> oh well, I I read stuff for a book of you. I just read a book of you. Um, for a book of you, I read a book on Aquinas on prophecy, and then I, but I also read the first volume of Father Thomas Joseph White's um, Principles of Catholic Theology. Now that is a great book. It you know that's a book. That's a book that could not have been written in the 1990s, but it's it's written now, um, and it's a great gift because he he is moving us beyond sort of a deracinated Catholic theology into the full full uh, what Catholic theology really is, you know, sacred doctrine. But he has a way of doing it. He understands different schools of thought, so there's not there's not some sort of polarities where you have to be a Thomas or else you're you're going to go to hell or something. <laughs> you know, it's just a wonderful. It's it's just a capacious and wonderful vision of Catholic yeah. theology. And uh, Father Thomas Joseph White is is a real master. That's great. Uh, just second question: What's a practice, a, maybe a daily practice that you? find helps you draw closer to God and discover his plan for your life? I'm very much, um, very much the, the sacrifice of the mass, you know, that, that for me is the heart of everything. I mean, I'm, I'm often a little late to mass, which I really regret, but um, I'm, late, I'm late to everything, but, but I love the sacrifice of the mass. That's, that is the very core of my um, spiritual life. I mean, I, of course, I have other prayers that I say throughout the day, but but the very core is the sacrifice of mass. That's beautifully put. And uh, just last question: What's an idea that you believed about God that later you discovered to be false when you discovered uh, right the deeper truth about who God is uh, in the faith? Well, uh, in terms of in terms of belief about God, there is this. I mean, when I I guess when I, uh, I'm trying to think about your question, and there's a number of ways I could I could try to answer it, but I do feel that as I've as I've aged, I, I'm now I'm not talking then about uh, views of God that I had as a young person. I'm talking about this now as what aging has done, and and I'm I'm 52, so. I feel that as I've aged, I have gotten very much closer to the divine mercy. You know, the divine mercy because, um, of course, the world is the world is a difficult place uh, for everybody, and um, it's difficult because of worldliness, temptations toward world worldliness in oneself. Also, just one sees the the wickedness that um, that is just around oneself in, and as well as in oneself. So I do think that the divine mercy um, is something 
extremely important. Now, it's important, um, you know, because, uh, I mean, and of course, St. Saint, Faustina Saint is, of course, one of my heroes. But but oh. the Divine Mercy is, is, it's not important in order to show us that we are not sinners. Sometimes people get caught up in the idea of mercy, and they, they kind of think, you know, when you encounter the Divine Mercy, what you encounter is the fact that, hey, God doesn't care. <laughs> yes. God doesn't care yes. if you are sinners. Uh, unfortunately, that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> um, what what it is what it is though is this profound um, desire that I have experienced in God, where God really loves sinners. You know, He loves us, and that doesn't mean He. We need to not be sinners. We need to be transformed. God though loves us. He loves sinners, and He loves them in order to transform them. Anyway, the depth of divine mercy. Wow, uh, what a what a what a great place to finish our conversation. Uh, so today I've been speaking with uh, Matthew Levering, who uh, holds a chair in theology at Mandelein Seminary, uh, former colleague and one of the founding professors at Ave Maria University in the theology department. And we've been speaking about his recent book on the theology of Robert Barron which has been published by Word on Fire Academic. Uh, you can find a copy of it at wordonfire.org slash academic. And again, it's The Theology of Robert Barron. Uh, while you're there, if you're interested, you can also buy a book uh, that Matthew and I wrote called The Wisdom of the Word, Biblical Answers to 10 Pressing Questions About Catholicism, right? Our own attempt to try to recover the richness and meaning of the biblical revelation in response to contemporary questions about the church. So, so grateful for, you know, I think all of Bishop Barron's work for Word on Fire and all they're doing. And uh, Matthew, thank you for right taking the time to write a book about Bishop Barron and maybe help students, uh, you know, maybe seminarians, uh, priests kind of recognize not only what Bishop Barron teaches, but also how to navigate difficult periods within the church. Sometimes when maybe when, as he was growing up, when, you know, seminaries were not always, you know, the best place to learn Orthodox Catholic theology, right? And yet nonetheless, right, he persevered and is able to help reach mm -hmm. out to a whole new generation. So uh, thank you for your work and uh, thanks for being on the show, Matthew. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Michael. Excellent. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.